Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's about getting people to think about the future, think about it creatively, think about it differently, so they can be better prepared for it. The pace of change and rev- level of uncertainty is now likely to outpace good governance and unity, and that's important. Some people feel that you know climate change is being done to us. Well, no, actually, we are causing that climate change on the world around us by the way we are choosing to live. When we make difficult decisions, we often look for evidence and certainty, and by doing so we look over our shoulder into the past and therefore reinforce the mental models that got us to where we are today. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by the National Security College at the ANU and policyforum.net. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We will be talking to Brigadier Ewan Murchison from the UK Ministry of Defence's Development, Concepts and Doctrine Centre, otherwise known as DCDC. They are essentially seen as the Ministry of Defence's think tank. And this episode is going to kick off what will be a bit of a theme for the NATSEC pod of futures analysis. Futures is the systematic practice of considering possible and plausible future trends in order to best prepare for them. This kind of thing is exceptionally important for policymakers uh, who have to make decisions on settings for national economies, critical infrastructure, education curriculums, and national defence. The, the act of creating a plan is in itself a form of futures forecasting. It's akin to saying that I think the most likely situation for me will be XYZ. And this is how I'm going to react or how I'm going to get what I want out of that situation. In this particular scenario, XYZ may even represent the decision that you have no idea what is going to happen in the future. So you create a plan to respond to uncertainty. And this may be fine in our personal lives, but for policymakers, winging it is just not an option. So strategic forecasting is where analysts take a systematic approach to understanding historical trends and determining the plausible and most likely trajectories uh, into the future. Uh, For example, uh, will demographic trends indicate an aging population requiring an increase in geriatric care and facilities, or does it indicate a younger population that will require increased demand for education services and employment opportunities. Futures forecasting also pays close attention to the intersection of these trend lines and how they may interact. And it also tries to tease out some of the uh, inevitable unintended consequences that will always eventuate. 
for example, uh, how will an ageing population spur research into automation that can replace a dwindling workforce? And how might these advances be adapted by the defence community to increase capabilities of the individual soldier or even replace the individual soldier altogether? And then how might expensive automated armies impact relations between countries that can afford robot armies and those who can only field human soldiers? DCDC has just released its most recent global strategic trends report, which is titled The Future Starts Today. These kinds of reports, their goal is not to predict the future, but to be an aid to thinking about the future and to understanding the trend lines and potential inflection points in order to assist policymakers and societies with preparedness. Brigadier Ewan Murchison is a Royal Marine. He is a rugby enthusiast and also the head of futures and strategic analysis at DCDC. He is with the National Security College today, conducting some futures scenario activities with our experts and officials from the Australian National Security Community. And he's joining us now to discuss the Global Strategic Trends Report and the concept of futures forecasting for national security policymaking. G'day, Brigadier Murchison. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Good morning. Thanks very much for this opportunity to come and talk to you today. So you've recently released, or your organisation has recently released, the Global Strategic Trends Report. Can you just give us an outline of what this report is and who you're hoping will be influenced by the report? Certainly. So um, this is a report that looks into the future. It's an aid to thinking about the future, uh, to provide the strategic context uh, for those who are um, considering long-term policy, capability development and strategy thinking. So really, the main audience is for people who are making decisions, balance of investment decisions and decisions about how we are going to you know, conduct military activity in the future. There's an old saying, uh, prediction is very difficult, especially if you're predicting the future. Um, what's your approach to thinking about the future and dealing with uncertainty? So this is a trends-based approach. By trends, I mean discernible patterns of change over time. Um, we have a 30-year horizon, but of course, uh, whilst you start that far out, you need to bring it back to a point that is meaningful for those making the policy you know, decisions today. Um, so we talk about um, moving from backsight to foresight, so the complete journey. So backsight is about history, it's about experience, it's about lessons of previous activity, and foresight is about um, being adaptive as an organisation coping better with uncertainty and surprises that, that uh, come your way. So um, I think the central idea of the work is um, the fact that uh, the pace of change and rev- level of uncertainty is now likely to outpace good governance and unity, and that's important. Um, and it also talks, interestingly, to this idea that um, the only certainty about the future is its inherent uncertainty. So uncertainty is a currency in which you must try to understand. And it's about making decisions in conditions of uncertainty and becoming more comfortable with doing that. And that's uh, that's how we view it. And is there any particular significance to the 30 years that you've chosen for the timeline? I, I guess from, a, again, a military point of view, um, the procurement timeframe to bring capabilities in and then the amount of time they will be in service is, you know, that sort of horizon. Um, but actually, it also some view that it takes 30 years to grow a good leader. So we need to get in amongst our, our, our juniors in their 20s because when they're the senior leaders of the organisation in their 50s, that is a 30-year horizon. So they've really got to be thinking um, through that source of time frame. 
Right. And the GST or the Global Strategic Trends Report, it's now in its sixth edition. And and this is a process that DCDC, your organisation, has been undertaking since 2001, I believe. Why did you originally start this process and, and what has evolved over the nearly 20 years since its inception? Yeah, so this is about um, horizon scanning is essentially about getting upstream of the issues to identify. And we like to think actually about both threats and opportunities, because, of course, if you can get upstream of issues um, before potentially competitors do, you can identify them as um, opportunities. If you do nothing at that stage and competitors grab them, then they will gain the initiative. And the next time you see them, they will be sort of threats or issues that you have to manage. We consider our approach as something that is about priming the pump um, for that policy and capability strategy development um, and getting upstream of those issues. Interestingly, this is the sixth edition, as you say. We've done quite a lot of looking at you know what's been consistent during that. About um, 12 of the 16 focus areas we see in our work now, we were discussing in 2001. So there is a degree of consistency here. What is more challenging is actually the extent to which our work directly contributes to policy outcomes. It's much more difficult to prove that cause and effect. And to be honest, um, it often requires a major event before people sit up and take action. And a, and a good example of that would be migration. We were flagging that up in sort of 2008, 2009, but it wasn't until a major event in southern coast of Europe in 2016 um, where people actually set up and it became an issue on the, on the agenda. So we are still, as humans, I think, a little bit reluctant to take leap into the future and uh, we tend to wait for an event before we actually take action on some of this work. Do you think that your work prior to that uh, large immigration event or that inflection point actually helped policymakers deal with that or was that something that more brought, uh, that brought more attention to your work where it actually proved the value of the work that you were doing? Yeah, so that's another good interesting point. We often identify what needs to be addressed in our work. So, but we don't go so far as to actually determine the policy and strategy. That is the preserve of other people. So, you know, to use a sort of medical metaphor, we're more in the diagnosis rather than prescription of those issues. So yes, um, we flag it up, but it is for others to then put in place the policy. Um, And we have to be slightly careful that we don't, you know, go go back and say, we told you so when things do appear. Because of course, some of our work doesn't appear to be the way that we present it. So we we try not to be predictive and we try to be humble with the way that we do our analysis as well. Yeah, I I come from a little bit of a futures background myself, and we're always told what you succeed in forecasting isn't the most important. It's what you miss. Yeah. And it, it, of course, because you can't do anything, I, I would actually just maybe rephrase that to say that it's it's about the conversation. It's actually, you know, so it's not about being right or wrong. It's about getting people to think about the future, think about it creatively, think about it differently so they can be better prepared for it because you can't know everything that's going to happen, but you can, um, you can prepare. So a good example is a, a, a metaphor coined by Richard Danzig. He talked about driving in the dark. So you don't go out in your car at night um, without turning your lights on. But sometimes if you turn your lights on full beam and it's misty, it actually is, you know, makes it worse. It doesn't actually make it clearer. So you just turn your side lights on just enough to see the twist and turn in the road in front of you where you can make a difference without trying to see the whole picture. And, and so there is a bit of a sweet spot into how far you look out in terms of distance and what the organization is that's trying to be doing with, with that foresight information, if that makes sense. And, and you've actually had an interesting way in the way you're shining your headlights into the future. In, in the document, um, you have an alternative future 
futures metrics that set around four alternate uh, plausible future worlds. Um, our listeners will need to read the document if they're interested, and we'll put a link up on the Policy Forum website. We found it interesting that the report acknowledges that these future world scenarios were informed by collaboration with the Australian Department of Defence's Future Operating Environment 2035 report, which coincidentally was the very first project that I helped work on at the NSC. How important uh, is the international collaboration and consultation in building a report out just like this one? Yeah, so very important. Um, we're in DCDC, which is the UK Ministry of Defence sort of think tank. We are quite a small organisation, only sort of 60 strong. And so we require... We, we, rely on a very broad, diverse network of stakeholders. Um, you know, so lots of the different government departments were involved in our work. We visited over 40 different countries when we were putting our report together as well. And we refer to this idea of conceptual interoperability, this idea of shared understanding amongst our allies and partners, um, and that helps us better prepare together um, for the future. But you mentioned um, Australia specifically. You're right. We, we we draw heavily, obviously, within the Five Eyes community. We, uh, we do NATO, EU. Um, and, and this activity, the reason I'm in Australia at the moment is to do what we're calling a sort of Indo-Pacific deep dive, um, where we are visiting a number of different countries in the region, um, running a sort of matrix game to be creative about the future and then drawing those insights and understanding how different uh, groups and individuals in different countries view the various challenges and that allows us to have a rich understanding. Um, so that you know, international collaboration working together is, is absolutely fundamental to, to our work um, and we're very grateful for the way that we uh, work so closely with the Australian Defence Force. Have you ever been shocked by the way different countries have actually viewed things differently to the way that you've viewed them? Yeah, so I think the answer to that would simply be that you know, history matters matters, geography matters, and strategic culture matter. Um, and therefore, when uh, different, you know, and without going through specifics now, you know, different countries view a problem, you know, through their own national lens and through their own national context. And it does therefore, you know, uh, deviate different games in different directions, which makes it all the more interesting to see, but also to understand their perspectives. Um, because of course, you need to stand in their shoes to really appreciate um, that they don't all see the problems and issues in the way that we do um, in the UK. For example, yeah, a perfect example would be what's important for Australia, a big island continent, would be very different to what's important for someone like Singapore, who is a small island connected to a large peninsula. Very different outlook on the way we see the region and what's important to us. And climate change is also one of the big issues that features heavily throughout this report. Environment is one of the key themes across the whole report. And whether governments and international organisations invest in climate change adaptation is out of defence department's hands. But what are some of the other implications for defence and security agencies of a changing climate? So I think climate change is almost the best example to illustrate the central idea, which is this rate of change and need for action now. So just to um, unpack that very quickly, I think sea level rise, the statistic is since 1900, um, sea levels have risen by about 20 centimetres, but they're going to rise by potentially the same just in the next 30 years. And the other statistic I like to uh, remind people of is that if we take action now um, against some of these, and that action might be you know, carbon capture, it might be improving water leakage systems, around the world, we can potentially save ourselves 40 to 50% in cost as opposed to waiting for 15 years before we start taking some of these actions. So that's the, the emphasis on action now, which is my, sort of my number one point. With regard specifically to the question, um, you know, a number of our basic planning assumptions – 
It might be around sort of basing. It might be around logistics. It might be around routes that we, you know, sea lines of communication around the world. Um, you know, it might be the the environmental temperature operating windows. You know, we need to some of our basic assumptions we will need to look at. Um, the climate change probably suggests that we will do more humanitarian and disaster relief type operations in the future. And I know that's something potentially Australia are more familiar with in the UK. Um, but at the moment, that's not a force driver for us. So that might change in the future. Um, and we also just need to make ourselves a little bit more resilient um, in our infrastructure uh, and our processes to some of these climate changes. So, of course, technology has, has a role to play here and we don't quite know where technology will bring us some advantage. But you, you're right. So climate change is a really good example where there are issues happening now and some of the predictive statistics indicate that we need to start you know, taking action to mitigate those challenges in the future. And let's move on to the technology. The report looks at the social and human development consequences consequences uh, of advances in information technology. One of my favourite stats is that while in 1986, the daily amount of information available to one person equaled, what is it, 40 newspapers. Today's consumer receives information equating to 174 newspapers, and that's about 34 gigs of data. One potential consequence of this is that individuals suffer from information overload, and that hinders concentration and critical thinking skills and so on. How might these and other changes at the level of the human brain uh, affect defence operating environment. Yeah, so I think you're right. The just the amount of information, the volume, the veracity uh, of the information now is this you know massively uh, increased from previous. Um, so individuals will be exposed to that level of information, you know, will cause fatigue for sure, um, but it will also potentially impact on their ability to make decisions which is one of the most important aspects of um, sort of being a leader anyway within the military. And this is an idea of command and control and what we call our decision and action loop. And, you know, adversaries are often trying to uh, outperform each other in this area to get, you know, um, inside your decision action loop, you know, or I'm trying to make mine quicker than yours so that I can uh, have a competitive advantage. So just maintaining situational awareness might become an end rather than just the means. And that's another challenge. But I think those um, adversaries or competitors who can exploit this information, um, and I'm now really talking about technology, I'm talking about brain machine interface, you know, using this information, keeping the human in the loop um, to make decisions will convey themselves a, a, a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com advantage in the future. Yeah, you've actually mentioned in the report that policy, not technology, will decide if a human is needed inside the decision loop for the use of lethal force. Do you see that um, there are some kind of ethical challenges and decisions that need to be made when we confront technology like this? Um, so you're absolutely right. The uh, So managing the technological changes will be a serious issue in the future. And we think that the rate and impact will in part be down to the technology itself, but it will be in part down 
down to society's ability and willingness to absorb that. So one of the best examples is the driverless car situation. And people fundamentally don't have the trust and the confidence in what that technology can do, and therefore they're reluctant to use it. I I personally had a great quote the other day which said, um, a world where robots enslave humans is largely our own decision. So to your point, this is a policy dilemma. We can decide the pace at which this technology comes online, and we need to do so within a clear legal, ethical, technical framework. But we need to be mindful of the fact that technology can be used for both good and for ill, and there will be actors out there who want to use it for ill, and we need to make sure that we at least are aware of that and make a conscious decision whether to compete or or not within the framework that we hold so dear in, in the Western world. So let's widen the lens to the geopolitical level. Uh, the report also flags the potential for increased state and corporate surveillance and control of communications uh, to become increasingly centralised. In this world, uh, defence against novel weapons of mass effect would be a priority. We've all heard about weapons of mass destruction, but what's a weapon of mass effect and, and why have you said that their proliferation is going to increase? So I think the first uh, important point to make here that in the, within in a military framework, we think about effect as being both the purpose and the consequence of our military activities. Um, and of course, traditionally, people understand well the idea of the physical dimension um, and therefore physical destruction. And I'm talking about you know the traditional you know radiological, biological, and chemical quite weapons. But we're talking about the fact that this now is spreading into the virtual, cognitive, and moral dimensions. So there are effectively other ways that you can influence both the behavior and the decision-making of various competitors. So to give you a couple of examples, um, you know, China's development of you know, social credit um, and uh, very intrusive surveillance, as you rightly point out, of its population is a coercive tool. Um, Russia's use of information as a weapon um, in their uh, activities around Crimea and Ukraine to create fear, to create paranoia, um, to effectively create a coercive effect. Um, and, a, and a third would simply be the novelty of cyber and the fact that you can use cyber weapons um, to disrupt rather than to um, destroy. And again, when you overlay things like artificial intelligence and we're not sure. So, so this is about broadening the lens away from physical destruction to other means of having influence on behavior and understand it in a much broader context. So you, you talk about the influence operations and we've seen them throughout history, say in newspapers and different radio broadcasts and so on. Um, is is the motivation of actors staying the same and it's technology that's just changing their ability to achieve their go- their strategic goals? Yeah, so technology um, is, again, not an end in its own right. It's, it's the means through which you exploit the campaign that you have. We have seen in the past that, uh, you know, actors of state level have behaved increasingly like non-state actors. And again, the Russian example in Ukraine would be a good one. But we've also seen non-state actors behaving more like states, um, you know, such as ISIS in the Middle East and using technology and social media as a, as a weapon in order to control the people. So there is much more of a blurry now between um, the 
the way that actors behave. But but technology for me is still just the means through which it enables you to enact a strategy which um, is not necessarily defi- designed by technology. Mm, and technological change is a key theme throughout the report. But what struck me is that ultimately this report is fundamentally about humans and society and policy choices about how we use that technology. Uh, how do we make humans the focal point of security rather than fo- focusing on technology or or our, our capacity? Well, there's probably two ways I can answer that. The first is we talk about this idea of human interaction and it recognises that the human is interacting with the world around us. And, and some people, I mean, climate change is a good example. Some people feel that, you know, climate change is being done to us. Well, no, actually, we are causing that climate change on the world around us by the way we are choosing to live. So the first point is, you know, the human has got to understand that they are um, interacting with the world around us and they are, you know, you know, therefore um, causing some of the issues that we're talking about. But the other aspect of this is one of the one of the key drivers in our work is the idea of increasing human empowerment. And because we're seeing seeing changes to things like identity, um, religion, health, you know, improvements in education, all which is sort of empowering individuals and communities to take much greater responsibility for their own destiny. And of course, some people refer to this as populism as well. Um, For me, populism is less about past performance and more about future expectations. So what do I mean? So if you've got an ever increasingly diverse population um, and then you've got maybe a, a system of governance um, or governments who are not able to provide some of the um, basic services which the expectations of the population is, then you will have that you know, potential for instability. So by really understanding what the people need and how that is changing and being connected through things like social media, reason, you know, resulting in these sort of populist movements, you can therefore start to deal with the inequalities and some of the root causes of the instability rather than treating the symptoms, which I think is something that we need to do. So that's the key point. It's getting back to the root cause of the issue and, and putting the human at the centre um, rather than dealing with the symptoms. Mm, it's an interesting uh, observation. I, I heard another observation straight after the uh, 2016 presidential election in the US is that you could map where uh, President Trump got most votes and that is the area where things like Uber and so on actually hadn't reached into the US society and that was a reaction of the people that felt like they were being left behind by globalism through the spread of technology. There, there is a nice little section in the report too where the trend lines in art and politics mix and, and it points out that the arts and the leisure activities like computer gaming and so on have always played a role in political, social and ideological struggles. Now, art isn't something that defence-minded people might immediately think of as a source of professional military education. What role can art and cultural heritage have on the big picture in terms of security and defence? So we know that both art and culture are great mediums for discussion, for cooperation and collaboration. And actually, um, they allow you to make friends before you need them which I think is a really interesting way of thinking about this. Um, It's about sharing our core interests and our core values. And again, it just talks to the previous point about the fact that, you know, the human is the center here and the human has societal needs. We are, you know, we we like to be as part of groups um, in and out of different groups. And therefore, by, you know, sharing our art and culture, we understand where we sit in that. Um, I think, you know, the British Council, from our point of view, was set up, you know, in the interwar year period to largely to counter at the time 
the sort of the, the German narrative as it was, and it was using sort of art and culture as a mean for generating shared understanding and tolerance, recognizing that there are different ways of uh, of seeing the world. And maybe this is a call for um, rediscovering some sort of this. So I think it's what I'm really talking about here is soft power. Um, and I think soft power has an increasingly important role to deal with some of the cultural challenges that we see in the world today. And from a military perspective, you need to think of, you know, soft power and hard power as being two sides of the same coin um, and used together harmoniously to achieve the uh, national ambition that you want to achieve. And speaking of narratives, I wanted to ask you about the power of narrative. And that jumps out in a lot of places throughout the report. It's possible that, that over the next few decades, we're going to see new models of developing for, for providing services to citizens, increased ideological competition between democracies and authoritarian governments, and citizens developing new allegiances outside of the traditional nation-state frameworks. The report notes that states may be more likely to succeed in this more competitive environment and better manage internal inequalities if they develop a strong narrative. Narrative is not something democratic governments are necessarily good at, what might developing or contributing to a strong narrative involve from a defence perspective? So um, I think it's worth just starting by saying that communication is fundamentally a two-way process. Um, so it's not just about um, the words, but it's also about the deeds. So this is about what you do and how you do it. And we have a great expression in defense about the strategic corporal, where activities at the sort of grassroots level can have a strategic effect for good or for bad um, because of the interconnected nature of the world in which we live. And it also talks to the fact that it's not about what you say, is what is heard by the people um, in terms of a communication. So I think as well that talks to the requirement to tailor your messaging to certain types of audience. Now, one of the um, focus areas in our work uh, is this increasingly expanding and unregulated information space where there's a blurring between fact and opinion, a blurring between real and virtual and you know little or no quality control, which is causing you know problems. So so the, the, the key takeaway for me is that we need to be less um, reactive in the way that potentially we have been in the past um, and you know, less about lines to take and more about creating stories um, which allow us to engage in an interaction. So this is about a discussion to win the battle of the narrative and therefore we need to be um, more of a credible effector in this space. Um, rather than just being sitting back and, and reacting. So in part, it's about actions more than words, because I think any story told through actions is more powerful than, you know, that's where you derive your credibility from. But it's also about getting onto the front foot and demonstrate a, a posture which um, leads the debate and sets the agenda rather than allows us to be, uh, you know, reactive. Now, of course, there are, you know, in amongst all this, there is the authoritarian versus democratic debate and how uh, institutions and, and media is set up. And, 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 you know, and I think we have to be very careful that we allow freedom of speech to continue. And I'm not talking about controlling the media here, but I'm just talking about being a little bit more proactive um, and encouraging the dialogue um, in, in a way that I just don't think we do at the moment as much as we should. Right. And just to wrap things up, the subtitle of the report is The Future Starts Today. What active steps should we be thinking about as governments, uh, national security uh, community members, and indeed just private citizens to shape the future that we want? 
So I think uh, yeah, we have a good line in our team, which we talk about, uh, we only study the future to disturb the present. Um, so it's, this is all about, and this is why we've chosen in our work, the strap line, the future starts today, and a number of these action words, you know, act, adapt, exploit, mitigate. This is about the fact that the, the, the world in which we see ourselves now and in the future requires different thinking um, and different ways and means to solve the situation and the challenges that we find ourselves in. So put simply, more of the same will not do. You know, our, our mechanisms, our norms just can't work as fast as the technology. We have to adapt the way we are doing our business. And I think if I were just to finish on sort of two points, one would be, I think, therefore, we need to really understand what and, and, and start to deal with some of the unpalatable issues. These are sometimes referred to as black elephants. Um, you know, people will be familiar with a black swan, which is a sort of unlikely but potentially catastrophic event. And, of course, the elephant in the room, those issues that people just don't want to talk about for good reasons of cognitive bias or institutional agendas. So we need to really understand what our black elephants are, um, uh, which are staring at us in the face, these unpalatable issues. And, and start to do something about them and have an honest conversation with ourselves. The other aspect really is about becoming more comfortable taking decisions in conditions of uncertainty. So when we make decisions, um, you know, do we search for evidence? Um, do we sort of stay in the middle ground and, and just be a bit pragmatic or do we try and get upstream of the issues in a sort of transformative way? And you can think of that in terms of past, present and future. And I think that at the moment we are all – it's difficult it, it, and I don't you know, underestimate the challenge of too many things, not enough resources, very many challenges. But when we make difficult decisions, we often look for evidence and certainty. And by doing so, we look over our shoulder into the past and therefore reinforce the mental models that got us to where we are today. So the real trick here is to get into that future space, into the right-hand column, into offset, upstream, and improve our understanding. We won't have the answers, we won't have the evidence, but we can improve our understanding, which will make us better able to take decisions in a sort of bold, transformative way to get ahead of some of these issues. Um, otherwise, we stay in the middle ground and we just tick over and at best keep up, but never actually get ahead of the issues. So I leave that as a, a sort of final challenge uh, for the listeners to, uh, to ponder. Well, Brigadier Murchison, we always look forward to working with DCDC here at the National Security College. I fully encourage everyone to go onto the policyforum.net website where we host this podcast to download a copy of this report. And we thank you very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. And thank you very much for uh, giving me the opportunity. And big thanks to Brigadier Murchison for that discussion, which kicks off our own trend line of looking at futures forecasting as an analytical concept and a practice in itself, as well as discussing what some of these likely future scenarios will be or what we think that they will be and how they will impact security in the region and the world in general. Don't forget to check out the podcast page on policyforum.net. Uh, that's where I'll provide links to the Global Strategic Trends Report along with some of the other leading reports and websites out of the United States, Netherlands and Australia. As always, we are keen to receive your thoughts if you have any predictions of your own or if you have any good examples of forecasts that have turned out to be absolute clangers, we would love to hear them. As a matter of fact, I reckon there's probably a whole podcast in historical failures of futures forecasting. So if you have any thoughts, hit us up on 
Twitter using Apps Policy Forum, or you can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod, or send an email to podcast at policyforum.net. We are always keen to receive suggestions for good pod topics and feel free to drop us a rating or a review wherever you pod at. We recently received a really constructive review from DSACT on the iTunes app. Thank you very much for that. Uh, you are right. War on the Rocks is a top-notch pod and was actually part of the motivation for the National Security Podcast. I also very much appreciate your observation of having a few drinks can enliven some discussants. Uh, however, many of our pods are recorded on campus in the morning and early afternoon, and it's kind of been my habit to hide my unhealthier drinking habits rather than inflict them on colleagues. So, unfortunately, it doesn't really work for this pod. I did like your suggestion of the title of Kangaboom for the podcast. But that part of your review really highlights uh, one of the dilemmas that people face who do pods like this on things like war and national security. A lot of us have the normal predilections for goofing off and having fun, but in this game we often deal with things like, you know, mass murder and concentration camps and war, which kind of makes it hard to crack jokes and have fun. So please, if you do have some feedback on what you would like to hear about and some novel approaches to the pod, we are all ears and we are always keen to hear from you. So thanks again for listening to this episode and we will speak to you on the next one of the National Security Podcast. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.